0: Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Jeremy Gilbert, and I'm here as usual with my friends uh, Nadia Idle. Hello. And Keir Milburn. Hello. Uh, and today we're talking about folk. Keir is going to tell us why we're talking about folk, at least where the idea came from.
1: This idea came from my daughter, May, actually. She was listening to a BBC podcast series, BBC Sounds podcast series called My Albion. It talks about like folk and you know the complicated relationship that lots of people have with England, I suppose. Really, and she thought that folk music is a, is a, like a classic ACFM topic, isn't it? Right, because you know, through me- in many parts of the twentieth century, in particular, folk music was really associated with a counterculture, right? And so it is sort of like associated with a counterculture, and and before that, actually, just with left politics, you know, with people like such as Woody Guthrie in the US, etc. But it's also a sort of topic that takes you into other topics which are more closely associated with sort of conservative thought like tradition, place, nationhood, actually. You know, folk music, and interesting folk music is really tied up with the idea of national cultures uh, to a large degree. So it's sort of a way for us to sort of to talk about our really the, the, the sort of countercultural and left politics stuff, but also to take us into, into areas we haven't really touched on so far on on ACFM, we've really sort of valorized the urban. You know, we did an, we did an episode on Acid Urbanism, in which we basically proposed that the urban areas are the traditional homes of, of socialism, right? And so obviously folk music has got some sort of, it sort of tends to evoke associations with with the pastoral, with pastoralism, although I don't think it is reducible to sort of pastoral folk music, uh, which takes us outside our, our, our comfort zone. But it also might want to make us want to think about the sort of left discussions around things such as progressive patriotism or attempts to produce new stories of what it means to be to be British or probably English in particular?
2: I'd be really interested, because obviously I, I didn't grow up in the UK, even though I've always had UK links. But it would be interested interesting for me to know what is conjured up for you when we talk about folk. Like you mentioned the pastoral thing, Kia, but... What kind of imagery comes up? Are you folk? Are you folk or are you not folk? Or how does that work with your own, the own image of yourself and how you're brought up? I'm interested in hearing from both of you. I've got my own ideas.
0: Well, I mean, folk, the word folk is sort of, it's both a noun and an adjective, isn't it? I mean, as a noun, it it means, Well, we'll, I think we can talk in a bit about the sort of genealogy of the idea Mm -hmm. of the folk, as the people. Sure goes back to the sort of early 19th century but then folk as an adjective which you can apply to different words i mean we've been talking about folk music you could talk about folk culture you know there's been a lot of talk in the past couple of years about folk horror as a kind of distinctive genre i mean the stuff that's designated with that term is usually from the from the 70s I guess even in my mind, if we talk thinking about folk music, there's at least two different meanings that sort of overlap, but they're not exactly the same. And, and one is this very, very imaginary pastoral notion of a, of a kind of pre-industrial or a sort of anti-industrial form of existence, which has some links with A kind of historic peasant past, but might be manifested in people, you know, leaving the cities on purpose to go live in the country, to kind of rejecting, rejecting industrial society. And that version of folk, it also kind of shades into sort of things like paganism and nature worship and people interested in sort of nature magic and what have you. And so that's one version of folk. It's a sort of, the sort of hippie version of folk, sort of pagan folk, the idea of a mythic Albion in a way. Now, Albion is the old is the, is kind of an old word for England, and then there's also a more sort of urban and industrial version of folk, which would be exemplified by figures like Woody Guthrie, you know, the great American protest singer, and you and Ewan McColl, the kind of key figure in the British folk music revival of the 50s. And in both cases, they're trying to use an idiom of music, for example, that owes something to. It's not even really traditional. It borrows a little bit from traditional musics, but it's more, it's folk in the sense that it's very easy, sort of cheap, portable music. It's music you can make just playing a cheap acoustic guitar and singing, so you don't need a lot of equipment. And it's an idea of music for the people, but the people who are imagined as being the people those songs are about, and the people you're singing for, especially in the case of you and McCall. I mean, they're not a kind of imagined peasantry, they're they're the industrial working class. You and McCall is sort of creating with his own songs and with some kind of rearranged traditional songs in the 50s, he's creating a sort of canon of music which tries to create a link between a kind of old world of like work songs and sea shanties and stuff, which, which does go back even to pre industrial times, but which would include basically like union songs and songs about urban life and poverty and politics in the post war period. And, and in those are, they're quite different versions of, of folk in a way, which partly pertain to real sorts of political differences. I mean, that sort of mid, mid 20th century idea of folk from Woody Guthrie to, You, McColl, you're talking about people who are very politically close to to the Communist Party.
1: You've got to join that one big union. You've got to join it by yourself. Everybody here will join it with you. You've got to join the one big union by yourself.
0: Then from the kind of mid-60s onwards, you get this kind of upsurge of this sort of almost sort of fantasy influence, this sort of Tolkien influence, sort of wing of the hippie movement, which is, you know, more sort of fairy folk in a way, and bands like the Incredible String Band, Fairport Convention, Steel Eye Span, and this, you know, in in some ways, much more aggressively traditionalist, but then also much more appealing to to a, a sort of completely imaginary tradition. And they're quite different. They're quite distinct from each other, although there's obviously kind of overlaps. And I guess for me, the phrase folk, it kind of evokes all of those things. It's kind of a continuum.
2: And do you feel like any of that is like resonates with you? So do you think, oh, yeah, because of the music or because of this way of thinking about culture, I'm quite into that? Or does it all feel other? Me
0: personally, I mean, my parents met at a folk club in West London. Right in the mid 60s which was a classic place for lefties to hang out at that time both my mum and my dad and the guy who was my stepdad for a few years all of them were people who went to folk clubs they were part of that kind of folk revival and their kind of actually their points of identification with it were all along that continuum so for my mum and my dad neither my mum nor my dad had any real interest in music it was just a badge of belonging to like the peace movement and the labor movement, in uh, in certain ways, like being you know sort of liking that kind of music, and you know my dad would sing sort of folk club, you know classic songs to me.
2: It sounds like you're saying it's the way to be involved with left politics while also looking dressing like a hippie. From what you're describing,
0: well, no, they, no, they weren't hippies. No, right. they're not 67, 68 generation. They're like early 60s sort of radicals. Okay, and they they and even when they lived in San Francisco. They absolutely didn't identify as hippies. To them, the hippies were just kind of people who were fucking off to the countryside mm-hmm. to to smoke weed and live in take acid and live in communes, and they were sort of escapist. So they and the, and the kind of the real, I mean, the height of sort of folk club culture in Britain, in Britain and America, was the early sixties, and those people tended to see. They tended to sort of look as look quite askance at the emergence of rock music, for example, which they saw as kind of commercial and sort of capitalistic. But I grew up with it as I mean, you're asking about my personal experience. So I grew up with it as very much like part of the sort of family heritage. And then my stepdad was actually more into the kind of late sixties, early seventies, kind of electric folk and this kind of steel Ice Span and stuff like that. So it was very much mm-hmm. part of the heritage. But it was also so it was something that I didn't um take any personal interest in right it was very specifically the culture of a very specific class fraction it was the the class fraction of post-war public sector professionals basically like people who were the first of their generation to go to university they got jobs in the expanding public sector of the sort of 60s and 70s and they then just spent the 80s and the whole rest of their lives sort of in retreat from that and a bit sort of depressed about it and so by the time I was old enough to be forming my own tastes and identifications I mean, that music sounded like the music of a, of a lost moment of extreme political naivety, and so I didn't really connect with it.
2: Come gather round, children, it's high time he learns about a hero named Homer and a devil named Burns we'll march till we drop the girls and the fellas we'll fight till the death or else fold like umbrellas
0: you know i guess like my in britain my cohort the last like iteration of that tradition that sort of made any that had any sort of connection with people my age was billy bragg listening to billy bragg was again a sort of marker of left identity in the 80s he was always like a weirdly isolated figure to some extent, and also for me, like when I sort of got really into techno and electronic music and, and stuff like that in the late eighties, out of
2: the window, mate.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it was. It was like Billy Bragg was like Billy Bragg was part of what we were rejecting.
1: I thought, right? I mean, uh, my parents are probably a bit younger than than Jeremy's, and so my older sister's called Karina after the Bob Dylan song Karina Karina. Ah. Um, and in, I grew up just out of the Swansea Valley in a in a in a town called Pontadawi. And from the early eighties, I think there was Pontardawe Folk Festival used to happen every year, and it turned into quite a big folk festival. So that was my relationship to it. But I was sort of external to it. We used to go to this festival because everybody in the area did. But that emerged out of like folk clubs that were held in pubs around the area, and they they always had a sort of slightly hippie tinge to them, I think. And so basically, you know when you're a, a young kid and you're getting into punk, et cetera, you, ha- you have to reject all of that stuff. <laughs> and Then you have to come back to it later on sort of thing. And so as far as like relationships to like folk music go, I think alongside Billy Bragg, you have like in, in the 80s in particular, you have that sort of punk folk crossover in bands like the Pogues, et cetera. But the Pogues are resolutely not English folk. They are Irish Mm. rebel song. Folk. The page of the first band I ever went to see.
0: I love the page. We have
1: one million pipes, of the best lawyer like our rags.
2: We have two million barrels of snow. We have three million sides of our blind horses' hides. We have four million barrels of bones. We have five million hearts, six million ducks. seven million barrels of
1: parts. We have eight million barrels of our I think it's an interesting thing, right, this this idea that in both the, the US and, and the UK, although in the US slightly earlier, uh, a sort of collating of folk music and then a sort of, a sort of writing a, and celebration of folk music, it was specifically a left-wing project coming out of the Communist Party in both areas. And we can see that sort of like later on, this sort of that folk folk versus sort of acid folk in some ways, you could see it as a generational tension like Jim is setting up there between, like, I'm not saying the orthodox left and the radical left, but, like, basically, that sort of Communist Party left and then, you know, a left that just kind of comes to terms with, it, with the era of mass consumption, basically. And so this sort of 1960s counterculture folk revival really is a sort of, like, you know, it's in dialogue with mass culture, either rejection or inclusion of certain bits. But before that, there's a battle around folk music, because the, the really first in- interest in folk music is is all around trying to, I mean, folk music and interest in folk music and folk cultures and folk dance is all about trying to create an idea of a national culture. And so in the UK it's, you get people such as Cecil Sharp and like Cecil Sharp House is still sort of like the place in in London it's
2: amazing I've had a I've done a Kaylee there it's excellent
1: yeah exactly yeah but but these sorts of things folk dancing collecting up folk music and all this sort of stuff yeah I love it but the people who started that movement that was a consciously sort of conservative of a small c movement basically mm. and so you can definitely see folk music as this constant battle to try to create a narrative around what the nation is what what the what the character of the national culture is basically and there's a battle just really between left and right and then between sort of a particular form of post-war left which is dominated by the communist party, and a sort of psychedelic left but in some ways the psychedelic left saw themselves as more authentic than the Ewan McCall left. Well, also, I think if you're talking specifically about that moment the late
0: 60s and early 70s, I mean, to me, it always seems that the sort of electric folk and the kind of mythic Albion folk of that moment is some of the least political... Of the of the stuff that's coming out at that time, I think yeah yeah the strands of the counterculture that are more politicised they're either doing kind of acid rock which is very different they're into things like Pink Floyd or the Grateful Dead or they're sort of proto punk you know they're going to evolve into the the punks so I don't think it is it's not even really that the there's communist folk and then there's kind of radical left folk it's more that there's there's communist folk and then there's a completely different kind of ecology of musics and things in which folk music takes on quite a different meaning, like almost an anti-political meaning, I think.
2: It does feel like the sort of episode where I wish I had a flowchart, because on one hand, on one hand, we've got this kind of pastoral kind of vision, which is the, the imagery that I get. So for me, I have a very different vantage point to all of this, which is that I have no... None of those experiences, not growing growing up in the UK, but even just when we're talking in the beginning of like Albion, the concept Albion really scares me. I don't know. I have a very visceral reaction to that word, which is interesting, like more than England. I feel like I have less of a problem with England than I do with Albion, which I don't really understand uh, kind of like from the outside, but it's an interesting position for me from where I'm standing. But there's also the kind of, if I think about it from the UK and how people refer to folk or how I understand folk in the UK, there's definitely, and we'll talk about this, I think, a bit in the end, this kind of return, going back to the land, people being removed from the land, something to do with roots and kind of pastoralism and and all of that imagery, which you guys touched on, of like the small C conservative, like Culture in place, and that place is not big cities. But having grown up in two urban metropolises, well, in the suburbs, which is probably far away from the culture of the urban and the culture of the countryside. I have this sense that, or at least I feel like I grew up with the sense that folk and folklore, at least here in Egypt, is a pretty part of your identity, which is often like female. It involves a certain kind of culture. It's like the mother. It's like dancing. It's like folklore, all that stuff. It's not progress. Progress with a capital P is kind of what happens with industrialization and it's kind of the city. So I'll be interested to hear what you guys think about how that goes full circle in terms of what you were saying with communism and a kind of progressive politics around the return to the countryside, or if there ever can be one, and how that kind of maps in with the post-colonial setting where you don't want to go back to the village because that's not where progress is or money is or education is.
0: Well, I think that is really relevant. I mean, one of the things that's really characteristic of that late 60s, that kind of, you know, I'm going to call it fairy folk in its most extreme. And, and the most extreme example is The Incredible String Band. We should play something by The Incredible String Band.
1: Many fine girl I tried hard to know But I think i never tried enough Sitting one day by myself And I'm thinking what could be wrong when this funny little hedgehog comes running up to me and it starts up to sing me the song. Oh, you yeah, know all
0: the words. Some... What's interesting, what's going on there, is there is quite a deliberate attempt to create a, a, a highly feminized kind of mu- rock music or post rocks sort or of folk music. It's, it's really playing down the percussion, it's getting rid of all the distortion on the guitars. It's even though there's a lot of, like, there's male vocals, it's very kind of ethereal, you know, almost sort of falsetto singing. Simon Reynolds and Joy Press, actually, in their book called The Sex Revolts Gender Rebellion and Rock and Roll, they sort of identify that moment of the kind of pastoral coming into acid rock. You hear it in some of the music of people like The Birds in the state. And then, as I say, people like Incredible String Band here, they absolutely identify it in sort of psychoanalytic terms. It's a mode of masculinity as they analyze it, but it's a mode of masculinity which wants to sort of merge with the Earth Mother. It wants to kind of all return to the womb or something. It wants indeed to retreat from or reject the kind of aggressive masculinity of the city, of the urban, you know, which is kind of the flip side. You know, it's the kind of heavy rock that's starting to come out of Detroit, and Birmingham, and stuff and things like that so there definitely is something going on there and I think there's also something going on I mean they have this kind of fairly crude psychoanalytic reading you can also say that it's partly a response to kind of in- incipient women's liberation you know people are trying to figure out you know what does it what does it mean to get rid of all the macho elements from from rock music and from folk music which had, had folk music had sort of revolved around the idea of the heroic male singer mainly with his guitar and it was Woody Guthrie it was Ewan McCall, it was Bob Dylan it was Phil Oakes so there is definitely something going on there with that sort of pastoralism, and that is the sort of defence of it, actually. That's the defence of it being something other than just a sort of reactionary, sort of middle-class retreat from confrontational politics, is that it's it's actually trying to get rid of all these very macho, sort of heroic elements from its different musical
1: sources. The other interesting thing brings up for me, Nadia, you talking about your experiences of folk law and folk music in Egypt and then thinking about, like the British experience, is obviously urbanization, industrialization happens a lot later in Egypt than it does in the UK. Yeah, If you remember back to the um, the ACFM we did on intoxication and sobriety, and we started talking about I don't know quite how it fitted in, but we started talking about um, (laughs) how bad English food traditionally is, basically. And the reason for that is because the English working class... It's not
2: traditionally bad. It's that the UK is very unique in how people were delinked, were removed from basically yeah food <laughs> it doesn't exist anywhere else
1: but that's the thing isn't it because it because it's like this early and very brutal urbanization protest because of the early industrialization in the uk there's a sort of separation gets broken with peasant cultures basically so you can recognize that in food but it's also you know so you can argue that that's why there is this separation between the british urban working class and like pastoral roots. Do you know what i mean which helps explain why britain's one of these folk centers where you know starting in the in the late nineteenth uh, century, actually, there's this real search for folk traditions, which have to sort of be reinvented in some ways. In fact, there's probably a couple of different strands in folk. Which it, actually, I'm thinking about um, Alex Niven's wrote a book called Folk Opposition a few years ago, and in that he's sort of he's trying to set root this sort of division within interest in folk music and and folk cultures. He roots it in like two two tendencies within Romanticism. One of them is Sort of a yearning for pre-capitalist pastoral societies, but in that there's a conservative sort of theme of we have lost this organic unity that we used to have mm. in the pre-capitalist days.
2: It's like a call for anti-alienation, isn't it? That's yeah, what yeah, that that's is. Yeah, that's a perfect
1: way of putting it. Yes, yeah, a way, for, a, a call for anti-alienation. But if, 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 if urbanization and capitalism caused alienation, then perhaps we can go back to pre-capitalist times. But of course, those were pretty unequal and, and unpleasant times in their own ways. Mm-hmm. So it's like that, this creation of a sort of mythical lost unity. Yeah. Yeah. So Alex Niven sort of traces that into sort of green Toryism, right? And he says that, look, there's another tendency that comes out of romanticism, which is trying to escape alienation, but starting with the lives of working class people. Now, or perhaps then, in you know early early urban sort of settings, et cetera, and so you know there's a need to escape this sort of like you know the environmental hell actually of those early towns, if you think about those early towns and where coal is is powering industrialization, et cetera, and you can sort of see those two tendencies going through folk music and you know and those two tendencies trying to think. Well, two two ways you want to go back to to sort of folk cultures, but you can also see that this sort of like the failure to separate this sort of like yearning for a pre-capitalist organic unity away from this sort of like other ways in which we want to escape the environmental problems of the of the present. Like you can see that failure as like a real weakness in green politics because there is this in green politics there is this constant re-emerging of sort of like reactionary green politics dominated by sort of aristocratic figures, you know. Who set up the environmentalists and then stood for London? think it was Zach Goldsmith? Yeah, Zach Goldsmith's dad set up the environmentalists. James Goldsmith. James Goldsmith, thanks, yes. Who then sets up sort of like a pre-UKIP-like party. Yeah, the referendum party. Uh, God, yes. Thank God. Thank God you've got a working memory. Um, (laughs) And then Zach Goldsmith then, then sort of takes on editorship. I always remember, right, going to this... Go go into one of these protests. I think actually it might have been the European Social Forum in Florence, probably like two thousand and three or something. I remember like reading in the newspaper on the way there, an interview with Zach Goldsmith in the in the Guardian, in which it said Zach Goldsmith is one of one of the UK's leading anti capitalists. But that doesn't mean he's an, <laughs> but that doesn't mean he's anti business. Does everyone <laughs> do you no. think
2: everyone knows who he is? Is that a big enough I mean, it's a bit last generation, isn't it?
0: Well, he was a conservative politician. He was candidate. He was a candidate for the mayor of London. Is he still an MP though?
2: Wasn't he an MP in Richmond? Wasn't
0: he? I think he's still an
1: MP for Richmond, isn't he? But Now he's in the House of Lords, apparently. Of course, of course. Where else would he be? Um, well, we? oh, we should just just to finish off the um, Zach Goldsmith story because it is a story of like you know he was seen as like this 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 green figure. And because, you know, the anti-capitalism was used in a very loose way in the early 2000s, he gets held up as one of Britain's leading anti-capitalists. And of course, you know, he ends up running an overtly racist campaign for London mayor against Sadiq Khan, and then ended up in the House of Lords, of course.
2: Anti-capitalism—it was just co-opted, wasn't it? Because it was useful to brand himself as that. I mean, there's no way that we would that that he would be seriously categorised as an anti-capitalist.
1: Yeah, it sort of signals the idiocy of the Guardian <laughs> or of, of some Guardian columnists, actually. We should put it that way. That that sort of idea of like there there are two sort of traditions running through interesting folk one of them is like this sort of lost pastoral pre-capitalist world which is not always reactionary politics we should put it that way but perhaps has some tendency towards that and then this this other one which is much more to do with songs and these sorts of things the one thing i was going to say actually was yeah with we, you and mccall is like really really associated with the latter right and one of the songs we sh- we're going to have to play at least one version of is "Dirty Old Town." which uh, Ewan McCall writes. I found my love by the gasworks cross. Dreamed a dream by the old canal He started off as a playwright, actually. Like, Dirty Old Town is not a traditional song. He's writing that, and, you know, he's writing it in a... I think it was actually a song for a play when he first wrote that. But then he gets picked up and becomes is it a folk classic i'm not sure yeah There's-
0: it's a it's a folk it's a folk club anthem for years before the pogues record
1: it like i knew it by heart before the pogues right. ever recorded yeah. it. but then the most famous version is by the pogues well yeah that's fair to say isn't it who punk it up basically and turn it into a,
0: a great yeah punk. and it and it sort of popularized it with that with the, the sort of post-punks of indie sort of audience in the mid-80s
2: early old town
1: there is a sense of romanticising that in urban working class life, even though it is a, it also has that sense of rejection of the horrors of that of that world.
2: Because it's not, it feels like the pastoralist end of it is very, it's not the same as sort of a culture or an aesthetic to me of the urban working class going out into the country to claim the countryside or like the mass trespass or the ramble. That doesn't feel folk to me. And I wonder why it doesn't. It feels like the return to the countryside is something like that is branded as apolitical or like... And opting out, isn't it?
0: I think, like I keep saying, there's a big break, basically, end of the 60s, within what those things signify and how people understand them. I mean, one of Ewan McCall's most popular and best-loved songs is the Manchester Rambler. The chorus is, I, I may be a wage slave on Monday, but I am a free man on Sunday, and it's about rambling. And the whole culture of rambling, of the rambling association, of walking, which comes out of, indeed, the sort of outdoor movement of the 30s, which has its political manifestation in the Kinder Scout trespass. I mean, that absolutely is just indissociable from the folk club, from the culture of the folk clubs in the 50s and 60s. But I think it is completely right because that is about a kind of mass political idea of claiming the land. I mean, it's completely true and it's completely crucial. I mean, like, as Keir was saying, that really right back to the beginning of the industrial revolution, there's always this ambivalence in the tendency to critique industrialization and its effect. I mean, it's one of the main themes of, of Raymond Williams's, you know, first and most famous book, Culture and Society. One of his main themes is the fact that it's very difficult actually to separate out the kind of the radical from the reactionary right from the beginning, because right from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. People are saying, well, look, this is bad, you know, village life is being disrupted and destroyed and people's life expectancy is going down and people are suffering terrible exploitation. And even people who are kind of revolutionaries, even people in the communist and Marxist tradition who think that that's a necessary phase you're going to have to go through to get to a a world of of affluence for all – Nonetheless, you're still using a sort of pre-industrial set of benchmarks as a way of measuring, in in a way, how exploitative and awful that unregulated capitalism is. So you can never quite get away from that ambivalence. You can never quite get away from it. And the notion of the folk, you know, the term the folk, you know, it starts to get used first in German with the, the, the Volk. And then, or de Volk, I don't remember. And it's an idea which both is associated with romantic nationalist critiques of liberal modernity, which are eventually going to evolve into fascism. And it's associated with democratic and populist rejections of elitism and, you know, both traditional and liberal forms of hierarchy. So, and that ambivalence and that f- potential for the, for the idea of the folk and the idea of folk culture, folk traditions to sort of go either way, it just never really changes. And so then in that mid-20th century period, you've got a notion of folk. And and folk really does refer to the people as they are then. It's an ideal of basically, you know, sort of proletarian culture and proletarian cultural autonomy. It's not really associated with pastoral or with anti-modernity. I mean, Woody Guthrie is singing songs about having to leave the farmland of the Dust Bowl and, and head off looking for work. But I don't think Woody Guthrie is perceived as in any way a traditionalist figure, as anywhere an anti-modern or an unmodern figure. And then the sort of crux point, obviously the symbolic crux point, is the mid-60s, when Bob Dylan, who's emerged as the kind of darling of, of the early 60s folk music scene, in which there's a kind of elision between what's called folk music and what's called protest music, actually. And there's a general assumption that they're sort of the same thing. So you've got people playing mostly sort of traditional, modern arrangements of traditional songs. And you've got people mostly doing contemporary songs, like using acoustic guitars, protesting against, you know, things like the Vietnam War and and racism and Jim Crow and things like this. And they're all sort of part of the same thing. And then there's this classic moment, a very famous moment, when Bob Dylan, who's really kind of interested in the Beatles and, and the way they're producing this very popular, but also very increasingly experimental kind of music, Bob Dylan decides to start playing electric guitar instead of acoustic guitar, and he starts playing with a rock band instead. Sell out. <laughs> yeah, no, well, no, it's fa- it's at Manchester. It's a, it's a concert at Manchester Free Trade Hall in, uh, what, 65, I think, 65 or 66, where you know, there's a famous bootleg, which yeah, you can still get, copies of, where somebody shout, you know, people call it, shout Judas. I don't believe you. The really famous tour film, No Direction Home, it, it's, it's outside a concert in Liverpool, where he's kind of accosted by some girl fans who are like kind of complaining at him. They feel abandoned because he's now playing rock and roll instead of playing folk and protest, which is the music of the left. They see as the music of the left.
2: I mean, there's an image there, isn't there? I was going to say when you were first talking about going to the your parents going to folk clubs or whatever jeremy that conjures up an image of me of at least one man in the front on a stool with an acoustic guitar and then you get to fairport convention and other kind of bigger bands right where there's more people in it but there there seems to be a lot of there's definitely that image there of that kind of folk music being centered around the acoustic isn't it it's definitely no electric guitars and definitely not distortion.
0: No, that's right. That's right. And then there's this whole break, really. And then there's this whole new ecology, which emerges in the mid 60s. Fairport Convention and Steel Eye Span and the Birds in the States, for example, they're playing either folk, what comes to be called folk rock. Uh, that's Fairport Convention, the Birds. People like Steel Eye Span say they're not playing folk rock, they're playing electric folk. In other words, you play very traditional sort of arrangements. You just happen to use electric instruments, which is kind of really weird effect, but it's really, it's also really popular for a few years. I mean, Fairport, I think a really interesting example. And, And I mean, for me, Fairport convention always sort of, you know they produce this really powerful music, actually, and it's a really it's an attempt it's a deliberate attempt to do a British version of what the birds are doing in the states. So it is really synthesizing kind of rock idioms with folk idioms and rock instrumentation, and they're trying to produce something which is quite self consciously new, actually, even though it uses these very traditional arrangements. So you take a song like um, "Tam Lin," it's them doing a version of an old sort of Scottish ballad about sex and murder. But it's done in, you know, it's done in 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 this really distinctive style. And to me, it does sort of evoke this attempt to, in some ways, to get beyond a kind of simple distinction between sort of urban industrial modernity and sort of pastoral romanticism. And I think that also, I think we've got to acknowledge that as an important strand in left thought that goes right back to the Communist Manifesto and before. One of the key demands of the Communist Manifesto is to erase the distinction between the country and the city. And, uh, you know, Raymond Williams writes a whole book eventually called The Country and the City. And that is also one of the ideals, like one of the ideals in some senses of the most highly developed strands of the counterculture, for example, I think, are to somehow neither say, well, we have to go through this kind of accelerationist process of destroying the country, building the cities, and that's how we'll build communism, or just escaping, going off to live on a rural, organic farm, you know, trying to turn your back on modernity, that somehow you don't want to do either of those things. Somehow you want to er- arrive at a form of society and a form of social life and a form of ecology in which people aren't forced to choose between a kind of life completely alienated from nature and a life completely dominated by nature.
2: And that somehow relates back to what we were talking about, about the derive and uh, about that one of the things that the situationists were on about, which is turning, what was it, turning yeah. churches into manors. Oh, yeah. it's the when Places we were to experience
0: about. fear. Oh, yeah. Churches <laughs> after the revolution, churches would be preserved as places in which to experience fear.
2: But <laughs> also the hacienda, the hacienda, as in like the manor, yeah. but in the yeah. city, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, the hacienda must be built.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The this hacienda. might be a place to go into the rural commune movement of the 1970s. If Fred Turner's book, From Counterculture to Cyberculture, he makes this claim that a million Americans went back to the land to live on communes in the 1970s. it's a hell of a number, do you know what I mean? Like, I think that plays a role in this turn to the pastoral that you can sort of see in folk music and sort of other things. And, and sort of like that fascination with sort of paganism and these sort of things that emerges in the counterculture in the 1970s. It might, that might be a way to get into talking about folk horror, actually. Well, folk horror is really interesting because
0: basically... Folk horror refers to a genre, the, the ur-text of which is The Wicker Man, yeah. which is a film from what, 72, 73? Yeah, 72, something like that. And yet I hadn't heard the term folk horror before like two years ago. I don't know, like when, I'm sure people were
1: using it, but people have definitely been using it more. Yeah, It sort of goes back to 2010, I think. There are sort of like three classic ur-text films for folk horror. So it's The Wicker Man, The Blood on Satan's Claw, and what's the other one? I can't remember what the, what the third one is. But, and the, the, the director of Blood on Satan's Claw, you know, in 2010, around then he, in an interview, he said basically that was a folk horror move, movement and it sort of took, took off. But those, so like Wicker what's Man. Sp-
2: what's folky about it?
1: Well I, well, I was just about to tell you that, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> well, no, 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 but it's. Because I, 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 I literally cannot imagine, like, I, I, this is very other to me. Like, mm. I don't know what you're talking about, but you're about to say. So, Have yeah. you ever
1: seen the Wicker Man film?
2: I, I don't think, think so but know. I think I know I, I'm trying to get the aesthetic
1: no, so basically the Wicker Man is you know a, this police officer this very uptight Christian police officer flies to an island up in the northern Scotland north of Scotland where there's sort of like this cross between, you know, an ancient culture and basically uh, a thinly disguised sort of counterculture of free love and all this sort of stuff on the island. I won't do any spoilers about the way he ends up in a giant wooden wicker man, which gets set on fire uh, as a as a ritual to try to replenish the the, the the apple growing that goes on there. But that and the the blood on Satan's claw one, Blood and Satan's Clause set in sort of English Civil War times, but it's about a cult of satanic worship amongst young people, which takes the form of like sexual licentiousness. And they're basically semi sort of conservative meditations on the counterculture and semi like total fascination with it, basically. Now, all of those films always have this sort of theme of, if you loosen morals a little bit, these sort of atavistic things will emerge, these atavistic things from, from the deep past sort of idea.
2: I don't know. That's a, well, The Wicker Man just sounds like Hastings on Bonfire Night or Lewis. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> and on that bed there was a girl, and on that girl there was a man. And from that man there was a seed, and from that seed there was a boy. And from that boy there was a
1: man, and from that man there was a grave. And from that grave there grew a tree.
0: It's an interesting film because it's pretty sharp in terms of its historical reference. Mm. So the, the story in The Wicker Man is that there's been this cult as grown up on this island since the early 20th century, and, and it is linked in the film directly to what was like a genuine moment in sort of early edwardian times when there's a kind of revival of interest of folk music and the idea of witchcraft and it, it's the first time when people start to believe the sort of historical myth that witchcraft was a direct survival of you know neolithic paganism or whatever so the film is pretty sharp about that i, I don't think it really is about the counter i think it's it's more generally responding to the sort of permissive society if you see what i mean i, I, yeah. I think it yeah but also that folk horror thing, it sort of ties into this fear of the rural, which then gets in, it extends into films mm. like Straw Dogs and Deliverance. It's also, to me, it's also, it, it's a reaction to the fact that Britain, which is the first fully urbanised country, has gone through another big cycle of urbanisation. And so just the very idea of like people living off on a Scottish island or whatever it seems really scary. Like They must be up to some weird shit.
2: So it sounds like the reversal of what's happening in the slums, like we don't know understand what's happening in the slums, this is the opposite way around.
1: Yeah, it's sort of like isolated communities with their own cut off sort of um, moral worlds, which are at odds with the wider world, et cetera, and and often lead to murder and those sorts of things. One of the other things that that folk horror is really, really interested in is this idea of like time as sort of cyclical, like sort of repeated patterns of behavior being linked to particular places. So that's one of the things with folk horror, it's like really about place and so forth. I watched The Owl Service, which is like a 1970s kids TV show recently with May. Uh, my daughter may which is probably why she suggested folk and that's all about you know basically people trying to live different lives but being unable to escape these sort of you know repeated patterns of behavior which are embedded in a particular place etc and so probably nigel Neal is like another one of these people who writes around these sorts of things he wrote the quatermass films and series and there was one in 1979 which really is about the counterculture it's all about these sort of youth cults in a deteriorating society and they sort of congregate around stone circles and they discover do they that do
2: dancing we haven't talked about dancing yeah it's they're like all the dancing. One they bit. dance
1: across the uk picking up people as they come and then they congregate in these stone circles excellent see hey, that really? yeah that will get me totally what is that called what is it called it's called ringston round uh, but this is the this is the punchline. Sorry to do the spoilers, everyone. But like when they get when they get in these stone circles, this beam of energy comes down and carries them off into the well, destroys them. The idea was that that like the aliens have been harvesting humans through, through the millennia. The stone circles to the are, are supposed are there to mark the places not to go, basically, because that's the place where they get harvested from.
2: That's a really upsetting ending. But this, the dancing was bad in the end. I was going right. to say folk dancing is right. the one thing yeah. that I'm here for. Like I'm totally up for that.
0: I mean, it's, <laughs> that's the thing, isn't it? So these horror, I mean, folk horror is partly drawing on. I mean, in the same way that horror in the early 20th century actually is also drawing on a kind of general increase in interest in things like this, the occult and witchcraft and what have you. And I think the horror writers just respond to the fact that people are look people are getting interested in weird magic. There's a good hook for a scary story. Like what what if it's already dark and evil? Because also, and this is really is connected to that sort of that kind of late 60s, early 70s version of sort of pastoral folk. It is very much connected to the growth of wicker, the growth of interest in in witchcraft, the growth of interest in paganism, for example. It's very deeply connected to those things. Those tendencies, again, retain
1: this political ambivalence all through the 70s, 80s. That Quatermass was, I think he wrote it in the late 60s, but by the time it gets made in the late 1970s, there's a big festival at Stonehenge and it becomes this huge sort of free festival where young people are congregating in the, in the countryside in the case of Stonehenge and probably Glastonbury actually around these sort of sites of ancient.
2: And they Stone Circle. I love it. I'm, I love all of that stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 That's what horror writers do. They sort of sense contemporary fears and then sort of like exacerbate them so we can see them a bit more clearly. You know, so in Fred Turner's thing where he, the, from counterculture to cyberculture, he does an examination of these sort of this back to the to the land sort of movement of rural communes etc. And like his analysis of it is, it doesn't work. It breaks down because the people who go to the to the land they think that just escaping from the cities is enough to dealienate yourself. And in fact, what happens is that they they just bring all of this sort of Racism and sexism and classism—I don't really like that word—into these spaces, and they don't sort of try to overcome them in any way. And so you can sort of see that as this this inability to overcome these repetitions of behavior because you're not examining them. And you can link that back to these two different modes of trying to deal with with the alienation of capitalism. You know, can you just go back to to a pastoral past? Well, no, because you know we are made up of all of these of all of the sort of influences of contemporary life you know we have to undo them we can't just escape them in a sort of geographical manner
0: well yeah I think that's absolutely right and I don't and it happens it happens in Britain as well I mean it's completely mm. forgotten about now but that's what you know the travellers the sort of new age so-called new age travellers the traveller convoys of the 80s was people like living living away from the cities a lot of the time living on traveller campsites there was the TP village in mid Wales was there yeah. for years and years there was surprising number i mean nothing like the scale of the states but a surprising number of people did go off to become like sort of crofters in the Highlands and sort of stayed there like if you go into certain parts of the Highlands, at least in my maybe my experience is taking
1: anecdotal it's a surprising number of old hippies you'll run into i've got a friend who bought a farm with a load of people in the early 70s in mid-wales somewhere to get away and now it's you know now it's run as it's got straw houses everywhere and all these sorts of things there's a continuum from it i think people did do that you know they tried to to escape and you have got to remember that you know in the 1970s there was that sitcom the good life yeah that's which true. was about people choosing to opt out of the of the rat race and it was they were actually in suburbia where they t- you know they did farming on their in their garden etc it was a bit of a piss take of it
2: But everything you guys are talking about is sounding like you're talking about an escape from, so that all of these Mm, examples are leaving the city and going somewhere Mm. else. Well, are we saying that because of the way that the British working class was alienated off the land and brought into the cities, that effectively there isn't anyone in the countryside that is not posh? Is that what we're saying? Because otherwise there can be cultures from the countryside, right? Why is it that all of these the examples we've given, involve that movement from urban to kind of pastoral or countryside or simpler life or organic farm, all of that. Like, Are there no people who, I suppose what we're saying from the Wicker Man, is the Wicker Man example of people who had left to those places or are these cultures that are there just not keeping up, quote unquote, with the urbanisation?
0: I mean it's true in Br- this is different from the states really but in Britain yeah I mean the countryside got r- massively depopulated from the beginning of the industrial revolution up to the 50s with the mechanization of farming so and you did arrive at a situation by the by the 60s in which there were very few people in in the countryside and mostly it was sort of landowners or a very a very small disorganized like very subjugated uh, population of, of agricultural labour.
2: Because you can't just go and buy land that easily in the UK, right? In most and a lot of other countries, you can.
0: No, well, this is when well, you could, you, no, not in not southern agricultural land. I mean, land's still relatively cheap now. If, if, if you just want a bit of hill farming land in, in mid Wales or, or Scotland, it's pretty cheap because it's really, really hard. Like it's really hard to make a living from it. But the expensive land is all even land for development or, or southern kind of flat. Uh, arable land but it was never been impossible to get a bit of land if you just want some hills to put the uh, the only thing will grow on is grass and sheep trouble is the only thing that will grow on them is grass and sheep so i mean that is also an interesting thing to think about in terms of the british experience uh, which is different from other european countries that the fact that the, the left always was you know so heavily based in the cities because really there was barely a kind of rural working class and the the rural working class that existed was very subjugated people tended to be living in tied cottages, connected to specific farms, tended to be living isolated from each other so there was a very weak organisation. You compare that to France, where basically the sort of communal peasant villages were never really kind of dispersed and enclosed the way they were here. So there's there's lots of parts of France where the peasant communes became the basis for. There's still basically like plenty of like French rural communes where the entire area is effectively farmed cooperatively, and and the left and people vote for the or have historically like supported strands of the left, you know.
2: Which feels unthinkable in the UK, like that setting. It seems like France is not that far away, but in terms of relationship to the land and food, it feels like, you know, another, like, planet.
1: (laughs) It's very different. Yeah, Yeah, well, it is, yeah. That might be a way into talking about this other movement, which we should probably think about in terms of, like, this idea of trying to construct different folk histories of the UK, which is that whole history from below movement from people like E.P. Thompson, et cetera, because E.P. Thompson in particular, his history is really about that, trying to create a, a, a sort of different narrative around how that in- industrialization took place. So it's all about trying to construct and find sort of a, this, the histories of struggle, basically, how people resisted that. There's a trend in it, which sort of links to folk music, of trying to construct a sort of progressive narrative about the English character, which is much more based in these forms of revolt and... Um, these uprisings, et cetera.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, like the sort of thumbnail sketch of that, the, the, the quick history of that is that basically if you ask anyone in the world or in England, like, what does it mean to be English up until about the 1880s, really, then you're going to get some answer, which has to do with the fact that what it means to be English is to be at the cutting edge of liberal industrial modernity. You know, in the French Revolution, the French revolutionaries would would ask their tailors to make them clothes in the English style, because England was seen as being the cutting edge of liberal modernity. And this carries, this is still the case up until the time of the Great Exhibition, for example, and up until the late Victorian period. I mean, this is a really crude simplification, but a really crude simplification from a left perspective is by the late 18th century, the, the ruling class have got to shut down this idea that what it means to be English is to be urban and industrial because everybody on both the right and the left assumes that the logical conclusion of that is that England's going to be the first country to have a, a workers' revolution and, and go socialist. I mean, that's what Marx presumes in the 1840s. That's, people are still worried about that. And also, at the same time, at the late, in the late 19th century, the ruling class start, starts to have to win popular support for the project of imperialism which yeah, they didn't really right. need is, yeah. before I mean before that and before that the imperialism was largely done by sort of private companies with, uh, with sort of licenses from the government and so there's this complete reimagining of, of British and, and specifically English identity in the kind of really in the 1890s it's a complete reimagining of England and central to it is this notion of England as a pastoral utopia as sort of England as a green and pleasant land which I mean, still to this day, it dominates like conservative ideas of Englishness. It was still John Major was still giving speeches in the 1990s about England as a, a land of shadows lengthening on village greens. And it was absolutely central to persuading people to go fight in the First World War they didn't want to say to people, well, go fight for your industrial urban community because that was already addressing people as sort of proletarians and they knew that was dangerous. So they said to people, oh, go fight for this vision of England as like pastoral and rural, which, which is complete nonsense. England was the first major country along with Belgium, but is much bigger than Belgium, in which a majority of the people lived in cities and towns by almost 100 years. There's almost a 100-year period from the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century when England is the only country in the world in which a majority of people live in towns and cities. So it's absolute nonsense. It has no bare connection to historical reality.
2: You can see how you can build that picture, though, right? But it is pretty green and pleasant. In a lot of places in England, you can see that and you can see how that is an excellent communication technique, like from a strategy's perspective.
1: It's because it rains all the time.
2: But it is. It's because it rains all the time. It is green and pleasant, (laughs) though. Green and
1: wet. Green and quite unpleasant a lot of the time.
2: (laughs) I love England's green. I've not seen it anywhere else. I think it's amazing. But it won't turn me into a conservative. No,
0: I know, I know. So that's all true. But then, but then, so by the mid twentieth century, you have this the the, talk, the conservative imaginary. has completely kind of won the battle for the idea of English identity and the idea of Englishness. So yeah. So then, you of course you get this generation of you know, the communist historians and their students, people like E. B. Thompson, Raphael Samuel, and they want to construct a different story, and it's a story of political resistance to the enclosures and the throwing people off the land, putting people into the cities, a political resistance to industrialization and the waves of mechanisation, which de-skilled kind of artisans like the Weavers. And they want to construct this completely different idea of Englishness, which challenges the assumption that what it means to be English is basically to be a Tory. And yeah, I mean, it's not an accident that, for example, Billy Bragg, is one of the great contemporary advocates of this idea. You know, he advocates for the idea that we should uh, celebrate a notion of Englishness which is defined by the legacy of William Blake, the levellers, the radical trade, the chartists, the mass trespass on Kinder Scout, etc.
2: It feels like this is because the left has been shit on place. The left is really shit talking about place And the right is good talking about place. And I think what Billy Bragg's argument is, is that place is real for people. It's experiential. And they organize the concept of community or people or lived experience around that. And if the left doesn't, deal with that, then pockets of nationalism are always going to work in the discourse.
0: I don't dispute it. I don't dispute it. I just tend to think it's very difficult because, I mean, intellectually, I was completely raised on that tradition. Like as an undergraduate, I was taught nothing but the E.P. Thompson-Raph Samuel version of history. And then it was only after I I read more sort of comparative like European and sort of world history, I realised that you're on pretty shaky ground because all of those movements by historic standards were very weak in Britain. Compared to the strength of suburban
1: liberalism and just cons- imperial conservatism, the other thing that gets invented in the, in the late nineteenth century is basically the royal family. Right, all of the traditions around the royal family get invented in the yeah. It's just, well, it's the, the same moment. It's exactly the same. Yeah, exactly the same moment. But of course, like what's getting invented around the around uh, well, Queen Victoria basically. Is, you know, a notion of Britain as part of, uh, as the mother country of this, uh, this vast empire. That's the other thing we need to think about when working class folk traditions get broken by early urban industrialization. But the other, the other reason why it's so difficult to talk about Englishness and why Englishness is such a fraught topic is because of colonial history. And of course, like the first colony is Ireland. I think it's Wales, I'm man. in the Welsh Wales. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I am Welsh. <laughs> that is true. That is true. What I'm trying to get at is if we think about like the other sort of folk culture, which is really, really prevalent in the UK, it's Irish folk culture which is much more organically based around rebellion and so like irish rebel songs etc having sessions where you sing irish rebel songs and it's linked to a definite idea of like basically anti-colonial struggle right that's not accessible to the english it probably is more accessible to the welsh you're on slightly more dodgy terms with the scottish because Scotland was really involved in, in empire yeah You can see, as we talked about the Pogues earlier, you know, you can see that sort of Irish rebel song sort of culture. I think the Pogues were called the Republicans first or something like that, basically. Um, I'm not talking about the American Party, but about, um, you know, Irish Republicanism, etc. I just wanted to mention one thing we could talk about is we've talked about Chumbawumba before on the the show, partly because they're my mates. But like they did this really interesting thing in, in 1988. They released a song called English Rebel Songs, and it was like a direct reference to Irish rebel songs, and it was collecting up sort of traditional songs, going back to sort of like the diggers, songs about the diggers right up until 1984, basically my songs sung in the miners' strike. And that does fit with that sort of Billy Bragg sort of moment, but with more of a nod, I think, to the reason that Englishness is such a difficult thing to talk about, i.e. colonial history.
0: It's Billy Bragg's New England is a really ironic phenomenon because it's a song the lyrics of which are ostensibly about somebody not caring about whether we get a New England like a, a new political settlement but just wanting their sort of relationship issues to be resolved one way or another but it, of course it's become a massive anthem which is always sung by crowds with a very self-conscious identification with Billy bragg's left-wing politics so it's a really interesting example of a song that where the lyrics have a, have a sort of ironic relationship to the the feelings people end up associating with it
1: I don't want to change the world i'm not looking for new england i'm just looking for another go I don't want to change the world i'm not looking for
0: One of the issues we keep circling around, and and an issue that's there from the beginning of the 19th century for the left in its relationship to industrial capitalism is, to what extent can you escape from or reverse or retreat from the negative consequences of industrial modernisation? And to what extent are those things you sort of have to go through in order to get to the other side of the communist utopia? This term accelerationism first emerges a few years ago as, as a critical term for a really simplistic idea that's being criticised with the term accelerationism, that somehow actually the way to get to communism is to accelerate capitalism, because it's like a necessary stage you have to go through. You know, that's just a weird pseudo-Dalersian version of accelerationism. And then a few years ago... There's interest in what the idea of what's called a left accelerationism in various quarters. And people like Alex Williams and and Nick Cernicek, who I think have really, since then, it has to be said, they really have abandoned all of this terminology, really. For a while, they're promoting the idea of what they call a left accelerationism, by which they really just mean a left politics which is positive about technological change and sees it as enabling rather than something to resist. And that is predicated on their critique of what they call folk politics, which is a critical term for what they understand at the time as being a typical set of habits and presumptions on the activist left, which tend to always favour decentralised activity, small groups, consensus decision-making, low-tech. It's a weird term, folk politics, so it partly draws on... These philosophers, the Metzingers, there's a couple and their surname is Metzinger. I can never remember their first names. And they're sort of influenced by neuroscience. And they have this Mm. critique of what they call folk psychology. And folk psychology is like um, just ordinary understandings of subjectivity and individuality, which are shared by people who don't know enough neuroscience to know that actually there is no such thing as a coherent self. So partly they borrow this term folk politics from that. It just means like stupid common sense ideas of the world shared by people who don't know any better. But also specifically they use folk politics refers to the fact that around the time when Alex and Nick are are writing this stuff, which is sort of 10, 12, 15 years ago, at least within the kind of middle class left sort of blogosphere and and wider social networks that they're part of or not part of sort of commenting on, projects like climate camp are the sort of central form of political activity and there is this real stress on things like consensus decision making as opposed to democratic structures things like you know sort of spontaneous forms of organization as opposed to buildings or party structures or whatever things like sort of low-tech localized solutions to social and political problems as opposed to Using the power of the centralized state to contest the power of capital. So they use this term for folk politics as a way of critiquing all those assumptions. Their critique of it was a bit problematic, because I don't think it acknowledged how how relatively recent and localized it was. But it was it was referring to this moment sort of just before sort of Corbinism and the Sanders movement in the States when most of the sort of activists left just had no engagement whatsoever with mainstream structures or any notion of sort of long term institution building, any notion of sort of long range political strategy. I think it was a kind of accurate critique actually of like of, of, of what of a set of tendencies at the time.
1: I think it is that it's sort of like it's almost like the sp- folk politics is, is almost like the spontaneous politics that emerge out of a conjuncture, perhaps something like that, we could say, which doesn't sort of examine the way. That you know the way we think about the world is made up by these wider sort of structural forces, and that the politics they're arguing for is actually sort of basically it's just more of a strategic politics. But a strategic politics, is like far-sighted and takes into account this idea that you know we will have to change ourselves as society changes, and we can't just accept uh, build politics around the sort of common sense understandings of, of, of the world that we that we existing, which I think does relate to that that critique I, I was talking about. Fred Turner making of, of the communes in the 1970s, you know, this idea that, that because they didn't examine, you know, the racial structures of the US, et cetera, they, they became extremely white places and brought racist attitudes with them. Those sorts of, these sorts of things. So I think it sort of fits in that way. I think w- one of the problems with the, with the idea of folk politics was, what they were calling folk politics uh, uh, at that time was just one iteration of the, You know, there must always be a folk politics in every sort of conjuncture. By the way, they're sort of talking about it, basically, and that was just one iteration of a of a folk politics, and it was on its way out as they were as they were making it making the critique. I think
2: it feels like it's a defensive. It feels like a defensive thing as well as in the the culture that they're critiquing it's when you feel like the rug is being pulled out from underneath you in terms of the effect of late capitalism i can understand why people are like okay small groups no technology you know it's just that the the interesting connection for me is like where where it sits along the spectrum of rationality like how is it rational and how is it about progress, and it feels like accelerationism is basically saying, no, this is the way. You know, this is the way you get some forward movement. Whereas the what 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 can be understood as folk politics, if you take it from their position, is basically a you no. Know, Hold on, here we've got to preserve something because it's all gonna you know go up in flames. Which is the beginning of you know forms the kind of psyche behind a lot of the climate work. Understandably. Perhaps one of the
1: things that sort of relates to sort of the, the ACFM project as well is what they were calling folk politics, uh, the, the iteration of folk politics they were critiquing, had a sort of sense that we wanted a less complex society. right? And that's perhaps like the, linked to this idea of like, you know, we can return to a pastoral pre-capitalist simpler age sort of thing. <laughs> But, um, you know, basically, I think on ACFM, we've, we've had this really strong trend that we want to embrace complexity, the full complexity of life, basically. We probably don't want a less complex life. We want a much more, well, not individually have complex lives, but like we want society to be as maximum complexity. And ma- so basically maximum freedom, and maximum options. Do you know what I mean? So I think that might, that's a way of thinking about it in terms of our, our own obsessions. Although we're also not accelerationists,
0: I would say. <laughs> So another thing we were going to talk about that relates to that though is that is you know how we understand the project of things like re- rewilding, like reforestation, you know, the sort of rebuilding of the natural environment. Because there definitely was a moment when you know the, a certain version of accelerationism was popular in a certain section of the blogosphere, when it, it was basically like hippie hating you know, slightly miserable like urban blokes who just didn't want to have anything to do with nonsense like sort of reforesting, rewilding nature, you know. It was informed partly by an aesthetic, a sort of, you know, sort of slightly industrial, slightly gothic, and the sort of supposedly anti-vitalist philosophy. But my problem with that was always, well, it was itself based on a sort of really narrow and kind of basically silly uh, understanding that somehow reforestation could only be regressive, would be kind of the logical conclusion of that aesthetic and that idea. Whereas I would say, look, the point is actually things like reforestation even things like rewilding although they use this term re they're not actually returning to anything they're actually constituting a completely new sort of ecological context which you know which might be sustainable which might be you know preferable but they are a way of imagining the new. They're sort of hypermodern, actually. It's a hyper-modern thing for me to actually say, okay, we're going to take a bit of land. Yeah, we're not going to exploit the hell out of it because actually, I mean, if you get into the history, like deforestation has been going on since the literally since the Paleolithic. You know? And I think that is important for us. And I think that is for me that is an important part of the sort of AC sort of aesthetic and project is to say, well, no, we're not. We don't really have any notion of a return to the past. But on the other hand, that that doesn't mean we can't want to sort of re- completely create a kind of sustainable and ecological and green and, yeah, environment.
2: Yeah, I think this is definitely the point where we should play... One of my favourite songs, which is also Massive Lol's The Return to Innocence by Enigma from 1993, I think, which is totally not a folk song, but is very much about this kind of, like, the return to the land, and it has this kind of chant at the chorus who anyone around the 1990s who had the radio on will, will know of by heart. I do love the song and think it's hilarious, and the video has, like, everything going backwards. Yeah, it's funny because it's it calls on it calls on that certain sentiment, which is about a return to the land, that, that you know everything was better before and we must go back, which is also part as we discussed earlier of this concept of folk, like one concept of folk. But I would be against that in terms of I think we would all be against that there isn't a forward trajectory. Because in a way, it has to be conservative if you're going back. But at the same time, based on what we were just talking about, like I completely get why people would want that when they see everything in front of them like tearing their
1: society apart. To return to that idea of England as a green and pleasant land and us travelling on trains through, through the UK and looking at this green, green nature. And of course, like, the, the, the point is all of that is like farmland. That's what it is. It's completely, it's no more natural than, a, than an urban environment. It's, co- you know, it's artificial. It's man-made. It's man-managed, etc. cetera. But
2: we all go walking in the countryside. Yeah. Like all three of us go walk. Yeah. Go, I love, love countryside. Going, going walking. <laughs> so I feel like it's, it's, I don't know. I don't, I, yeah. It just feels like you don't know what you've got, man. It is green and it's nice. And we all like walking in it.
1: <laughs> no, I, 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 I do like, I do like going to the countryside. Um, but, like, the project of rewilding and reforestation is sort of interesting. It's sort of – it's an, in a way, it's attempted to, it's an attempt to undo the damage, not just of urbanization, but of, like, agriculturalization. So there was a book, um, The Human Planet, by a friend of mine, Simon Lewis, and another author, I can't remember because they're not uh, a friend of mine. <laughs> that was one of their proposals. It's a book about the Anthropocene. One of their proposals was – For rewilding and rewilding in the UK. In fact, I think it was part of the 2019 manifesto that that what that would mean would be to trying to link up the sort of like, you know, the the sort of forested areas and the things which look closest to to, to what we might think of as wild to try to create basically uh, uh, corridors up the country for, for wildlife to be able to travel from one area to another and that is undoing, you know, urbanization, you know, trying to overcome the problems created by the motorway network and all that. But it's also, tr- you know, trying to overcome the problems created by the fact that most of Britain has been turned into, into farmland.
2: Yeah, and that the land is, res- that
1: people's access to land is restricted. Uh, I went to a talk the other day and there was a statistic that the percentage of UK land which is given over to, to homes, etc., something like 5%. I just couldn't believe it. And so like 95% of the of of the population's their access to, to, to land is going to be limited to like that five percent of land which is under home ownership and that, that sort of stuff. And the rest of it is just owned by huge land, you know, landowners, uh incredibly rich people. And of course, like dotted around the countryside, the other place we like to go and visit are these stately homes, you know, which is created by both that History of pushing people off the land into 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 the cities, and also the history of colonialism, which was uh, uh, created all the other conditions upon which capitalism could emerge. And did
2: those feet in ancient times be lit, walk on England's pastures green? Uh, outrageous! Ah, oh, yeah! Uh, uh, yeah. Uh.